Well, good morning. I thank you for the opportunity to share God's word with you. Uh, being close to Jesus is my intent. What the scripture I've chosen this morning is for. Uh, I want to say, though, that I want to thank the choir and the orchestra for that number. I, I've never seen an orchestra on their feet like that. And I, I started to look up. I wondered if it was the last day that he was here. Word. That was such a beautiful song, and I, I thank you all for it. I've selected for a text uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. It's a, a day, a moment in the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, at the time, he's out in Galilee, going from city to city, village to village, preaching in the synagogues, it says. Uh, but his intent the end of his journey, he's focused on arriving at Jerusalem. And that will be his Passion Week. That will be his last week. That week will be the end of his earthly ministry. And he's talking about it. Uh, he's talking to his disciples. He's, he's telling them what's going to happen when they get there. He's completely aware of what the Jewish leaders and the Romans will do to him. And so we come to our text, and it's a lament it's self-evident condition of his heart when he says these words. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left unto you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me again until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The pathos, the anguish that's being experienced by Jesus at this point is completely clear in these two little verses. He's left his throne of glory. He's come to be born among men and women, live a life without sin, teaching, preaching, healing, raising the dead, casting out demons. And the net effect of it in general is that his own people, the chosen people, the Jewish people have rejected him at this point. I'd like to call attention, if I may, to just a very simple little letter in verse 34. The first letter, O. It's there as a, a sign for us. It's an interjection. It's a, it's a strong emotion from him. If you, can, if you can feel it, if you can capture it, it's what he feels for Jerusalem. It's like, oh, no. It's like, oh, Father. Oh, my Lord. What has happened? He sees their rejection. He sees the intent of his persecution and his torture, his crucifixion, all of it. These are words from the lips of Jesus here that uh, I so appreciate the word of God because it gives us these moments. It gives us these these pictures, if you will, of the interior life of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and allows us to sympathize 
and draw close to him. Now notice he says, we're talking now about the, the chosen people, uh, those that God had elected in the Old Testament to be his chosen people that he had brought along for over a thousand years at this point. But he says, you're the ones that kill prophets and stone those that are sent to her. Now, if you, if you pause and reflect upon that, you'll understand that's shocking. These are the people God has chosen. These are the people that he's given the word of God to, that he's delivered time after time in the Old Testament, that he's, he's revealed himself to in his person. And yet, we've got the word stoning there. Now, that's unusual in this context. That's not what you'd expect. Stoning in the Old Testament was the prescribed method of execution for those that commit blasphemy or apostasy. And yet we find in verse 34 that Jesus Christ is saying, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and the leaders that reside there are those that stone the prophets. Now we don't have time this morning to to list all those, but it's self-evident if you read your Old Testament, how many prophets were killed in Jerusalem. And only recently we've got John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old era. He was killed and beheaded by Herod. So stoning, you're stoning the prophets and killing those that are sent to you. And then he comes to a phrase that drew me to this text this morning. He says, how often, how often I wanted to gather your children together. When I mentioned at the beginning the pathos, the agony, the heartfelt emotion, the interior of the Lord Jesus at this moment, this illustrates it perfectly right here. How often... Have I wanted to gather your children together? And it's a rhetorical question, of course. There's no one there to answer it unless maybe perhaps the disciples were there. But he's not asking for an answer. He knows the answer. Jesus the Christ, the God-man, has witnessed each and every individual rejection of him as he's attempted to gather his people to himself over hundreds and hundreds of years. How often, he says, but you would not. And there, there's, the, there's the rip. There's the part of the phrase that really, if you've got empathy at all, if you're sympathetic at all to the mission of God in this world, helping us all to be saved, it's horrifying. I've wanted forever to draw you to myself and to give you salvation, but you would not, is what he says. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher of the past, he called this the mother heart of God. Now, I want to get off on any tangent. I know what he meant by that. He sees the sympathetic, protective, covering nature in this love that Jesus is God, just like our human mothers had for us. God wants people to be saved from pain 
and suffering, and most of all, from sin. I could ask myself and ask you right at this point, what would God want to spare you from? What has he spared you from? What things would, would Jesus like to gather you under his wings and protect you from? Or that he has already protected you from? You can answer that question. But it's a, it's a, it's a conquest here that is being defeated. The purpose of God for people to be saved. He says, uh, Spurgeon himself said, what a terrible contrast this is. I would, you would not. God would want to gather people to himself to protect them and love them, but they would not. He says it's, uh, it's like something. And I love this about him, his, his teaching. He says it's like a hen that gathers her brood, her chicks, under her wings. That's the picture coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ saying what, what it looks like, what he envisions for your life. For Christians, for those that are far from God, for everyone, it's like a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. Now this metaphor here, if you've ever been around chickens, it speaks volumes to you. When does a hen gather her chicks under her wings? Well, she does it for protection. She does it to protect them from danger that she perceives. She makes a sound and they all run and gather under her wings. Do you think of God that way? Do you think of your heavenly father that way? You can, because that's what Jesus is saying right here. We can take his word for it. When I was in the first grade, I, for some reason I can't remember, I wanted to have a few chickens. And my father said, if you want them bad, you've got to build the chicken house and you've got to build the wire fence and get it all ready. I'm not going to help you. And if you do that, then I'll buy you a few chickens. And I did. And he bought me some bantam chickens. Now, I don't know if you're conversant with chickens, but those are the little miniature chickens. They're about this big, the adults. And he gave me some and I had this, this little hen she laid 10 eggs and she began to sit on those eggs and boy, I kept, I'd come home from school every day and I'd run out there and watch and see if anything had happened yet. And sure enough, one day, all 10 of those eggs hatched. Now there was a, a honeysuckle bush right there in my chicken yard. The leaves on it were yay big. And when I would walk out there not threateningly, but just to walk out there to see how they were, she would make a particular sound and those 10 little chicks would all disappear either under her wings or behind the leaf of a honeysuckle bush that was this big. Those little chicks were the, the size of my thumb. Now, 
Jesus said, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I can relate to that. I understand that. I've seen it. But perhaps like you, I struggle with that. That perception, that picture, that metaphor of is that what the relationship is that I have with Jesus Christ? Am I availing myself of his protection, his warmth? Is he my safety? He goes on in the text and he says, that's what I wanted to do, but you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have it. It's interesting in the original language, it's uh, you would have none of it. <laughs> you were unwilling is what one translation says. He uses in Greek what's called a negative particle which, complete, uh, which, which conveys absolutely negative. In other words, you absolutely would not come to me, his people. If I may, I'd like to interpret this to say, and there are very few passages in the Bible that throw the responsibility of people to be saved and not be lost more than this. I would not. I absolutely will not. And that's why our text is here. That's why there's a lament coming from Jesus' mouth. Augustine, our church father, he said, salvation is lost only with our consent. His, his literal words are, a man may lose all the things of this life against his will, but if he loses eternal salvation, he does so with his own consent. That's why Jesus is lamenting here. I know you're all familiar with Handel's Messiah. And you've heard it and worshiped to it. George Frederick Handel had a servant that took care of him. And he used to bring him a cup of chocolate every morning. And he wrote that he oft would enter that room and he would stand there silently astonished to see Handel mixing tears with the ink as he penned his music the brokenness before the Lord. A friend of Handel's, he wrote that he walked in on Handel when he was writing Isaiah 53's portion of Handel's Messiah. He was despised and rejected of men and he found Handel bent over his desk, broken and sobbing. When I read that about Handel, I think of this passage and I think of Jesus, of the condition of his emotions as he's approaching Jerusalem and ultimately crucifixion, knowing that those that would cheer his arrival on the triumphant entry would turn within a day and call out for him to be crucified. Rejection. 
Have you ever been rejected? Jesus has. For the word of God says in John 1:11, he came into his own and those that were his own did not receive him. John 5, 43, I've come in my father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Let's go on to verse 35. Your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in particular, Jesus is saying this to the Jewish nation that would soon reject him. They would soon turn from him. They would take a part in his crucifixion. And within 35 years of the death of Jesus Christ, four Roman legions would encircle Jerusalem and level it to the ground, sacking the temple. I believe Jesus had this in mind when he expressed verse 35. So we've got to ask ourselves, what's, what's the consequence? What's the consequence of denying ourselves of the gathering of Jesus Christ? Uh, I believe the text teaches us right here in verse 35. The consequence of that is, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Some translations say forsaken. Your house is forsaken. It could be rendered deserted, barren, lifeless, lost. You know, our mission here at Travis, our mission statement is that we are here to help those far from God know Christ. And we are. This is a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church that empathizes, is concerned, feels compassion for those that do not know Christ. And our hearts desire that if there's anything that we can do or say to aid others in seeing our Savior and coming to Him for salvation, well, we're there for that, and we're willing to do that. To be far from God, as we say, scripturally, is to be lost, both in this life and in the next. It would be accurate to say that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, that you are one of these chicks running from the mother hen, refusing to be gathered under those wings of protection and safety. He says your house is to remain desolate or forsaken. And the question is, for most of us, what house is he talking about there? Well, Interestingly, there are about three different answers to that question by New Testament theologians. Some of them say the house he's talking about is the Jewish temple that was soon to be razed to the ground by the legionnaires of Rome. Other theologians say that this house 
is the entire nation of Israel. The Jewish people as a whole, the population of Israel. Other theologians say, well, that in context is referring to Jerusalem in verse 34. So he, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem as a house. Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this, that all three of the items I just mentioned were forsaken or desolate. The, the temple, as I said earlier, was burned to the ground. The nation of Israel at that in occupation by Rome and the conquest of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel saw 1.2 million Jewish people lose their lives. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people were enslaved and sent mostly to North Africa to work in mines. The city of Jerusalem, Rome was so angry at the Jewish rebellion that they leveled the city. And when I say leveled, I mean leveled. They literally had hundreds of teams of oxen there to plow the city and make it desolate. When they got through doing that, they said, that's not good enough. And they poured hundreds of pounds of salt on all the dirt of Jerusalem. So nothing would grow there. So whatever option you want to, you want to pick when it says house, it's, it's up to you. You can pick all three and I think still be safe. But the point of verse 35, that your house is left desolate and you're not going to see me anymore. Friends, that was, that was brought to life in just three short months when Jesus died on the cross. The apostle Peter in Acts 3.14, he said, you have denied the Holy One and the just and you've asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you've killed the Prince of Life, which God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So Jesus says to them, you're not going to see me until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? When's that going to be? Notice that little word, until. That'll be the next time that you see me. He's referring here to the second coming. He's referring to his return upon the clouds. to bring in the next age. Some call it the messianic age. It's the thousand year millennium that he's talking about. That's when he's returning. And these Jewish people that are alive at that time will see him. This is eschatology. You won't see me until. Eschatology, the last things, the study of the last things, the truth. This is eschatology at its finest because right now we don't see him. We gather here every week and we worship him. We have 
a heart of faith and eyes of faith and we can, we can pray and we can study his word and we can, we can worship him in our services, but we can't see him, not at this time. But there's coming a day that we will. Jesus is coming back. Now that means something entirely different for a Christian than it does for someone that's far from God. Jesus is coming back for his church. He's coming back for his children, for his chicks, if I might say. He's coming back for those that have sought shelter and safety under his wings. You will not see me, he says. Three months after our two little verses were spoken by Jesus, the triumphal entry to Jerusalem took place. I hope you know the story. I don't have time to go into it much now. But it was the time that he was placed upon a donkey and he came into Jerusalem and they cut palm branches and laid down before him. And the children and the adults all said, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That was a wonderful day. Matter of fact, it was the day, the first day, the day that Jesus accepted people calling him key. They had tried for three years on numerous occasions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to call him king and to take him away and raise him up as the king of Israel. And he always refused it. But on this day, the triumphal entry, he accepted it. He accepted their calling him the king because he was. Now, I'd like to tell you a little story, a little history. I want to tell you about Sir Robert Anderson. He was the second commissioner of Scotland Yard in its inception from 1888 to 1901. He was a policeman. He was also a devout Christian and a student of God's word. Now today, in our time, he's best remembered for a little book that is called The Coming Prince. And in that book, he takes the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 through 27 and lays it out chronologically and comes to the precise day that Jesus Christ would enter Jerusalem and be proclaimed the king. That Daniel's prophecy was accurate to the nth degree, almost impossibility. But on this, this day, this triumphal entry day, this day when he's, he's willing to let people call him king, right after that parade, something else happens. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Luke 19, 41. I want to read three verses to you. Luke 19, 41. Right after the triumphal entry and all the adoration and praise, he says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, 
the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. They'll surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you know the time of your visitation? Are you a Christian? Do you follow Christ? Is his spirit indwelling you, helping you, guiding you? Do you have a sense that you've been gathered under his wings? I hope you do. These two laments that Jesus expresses over Jerusalem a long, long time ago, although they might be for the Jewish people back then, they've got a real meaning and purpose for every person that's in this room at this point, this morning. The intent is the same, that he wants to gather you under his wings. If I could summarize the points of these two little verses, these words of Jesus tell us how he saves those that will be gathered under his wings. Secondly, it says Jesus is willing to save the Jews of this passage and each one of us here today. Third, the person that gathers under his wings finds in him rest and shelter. Fourth, our text, our words, our verses are a lament of sorrow by Jesus over men and women and boys and girls that will not be saved. They won't be. Not because they cannot be, but because they say, no, I don't want to be. And lastly, remember this. That these words that we've looked at here this morning are funeral words. Israel's day is done. Israel's hope is dead at this point. Their doom is sealed. Now, we all know now that we've, we've got somebody out there that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know that he's, he's concerned about us. He cares about us. He loves us. We can tell by this text that he wants us to come to him. I think it's all clear. But although here we are in 2023 as compared to the Jewish nation back about 33 A.D., we're really not that different. We, we still, on the invitation of Jesus to come and be gathered unto him, we still have people that say, I will not. I wish there was 
a reality different from that. But to be saved, we have to come to Jesus Christ. We have to come and be gathered under his wings for salvation. You know, you can, you can meditate on these two little verses and you can say, you can say, I, I see Jesus and he's coming to me and he's saying, I'll, I'll gather up your life. I've redeemed you. Will you believe in it? He, he might say, I bought you with a price upon the cross. Can I not call you my own? He says, I've got an answer to your sin. I've got a, I've got a solution to your difficulties. I even have a comfort for the rest of your life. Will you, will you believe me? Will you, will you be gathered under my wings? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. When you trust upon these scriptures, you can be saved. When you place your trust, your confidence, that you're gonna rely on the fact that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven, he is the living savior alive today. You can be saved by placing your faith in, the, in him. We have a savior and he's not one whit different than these two little verses written 2,000 years ago and the truth of come unto me, gather under my wings. His invitation is exactly the same today. So I'd like to close this sermon by inviting anyone that is here this morning that has never trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior to accept him this morning. Now we're, we're Baptist people and we've got a way of doing it. It's been done for hundreds of years. We're gonna stand up and sing what's usually called an invitation. And that invitation is for if you're here and you want to understand and have somebody help you to pray and receive Jesus Christ, you, that you want to be saved this morning, well, we invite you to come down to the front. Now, you might say, I'm embarrassed. You don't need to be embarrassed. Everybody else in this room has done the same thing that I'm talking about at some point in their life. Or perhaps they sat down with a mom or dad or a Sunday school teacher or somebody, and they help them pray to receive Christ. But they're all the same. All these people here love the Lord, and they'll love you, and they want you to know Jesus. We all want you to know Jesus. So will you join with me and stand as we sing? And I invite you. I'll be down here at the front. We've got, uh, we've got Johnny's down here. And people, we've got Larry's down here on the front. Come down to us.
Don't, don't be embarrassed. Do not put off another day knowing Jesus Christ.